Uh, my paper explores what might be called the iconographic afterlife of one portrait of Napoleon Bonaparte, Antoine Jean Gros' Bonaparte at the Bridge of Arcole. I'm interested in how this portrait, and especially some of its particular features, resurfaced in French art over the course of the century after the fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. My argument is that the portrait captured particularly well a certain Republican image of Bonaparte, one that played a key role in the Napoleonic legend that grew up across the 19th century. Yet Republican ideals have their own history, of course, quite apart from their connection to Bonaparte. In this paper, I examine how certain features of the portrait lived on separately from the image of Napoleon. The Arcole portrait comes from the high Republican phase of Bonaparte's career, when in 1796, at the astoundingly young age of 26, he was appointed to the post of General-in-Chief of the French Army in Italy. In a matter of months, he transformed the demoralized and destitute soldiers under his command into the most fearsome fighting force in Europe. The Battle of Arcole came midway through the first Italian campaign and was the site of one of Bonaparte's greatest feats of daring. Taking the town of Arcole had been crucial to Bonaparte's uh, battle plan in the region southeast of Verona. But fighting there had quickly fallen into a stalemate when the French were unable to cross a bridge into the town. After a number of failed attempts to take the bridge, Bonaparte seized a flag and led a charge directly into enemy fire. This is the moment depicted in Gros's magnificent portrait. The general strides into battle, his sword in one hand and the flag of the French Republic in the other. At the same time, he turns back to urge his troops forward. The portrait marvelously translates the drama of the moment into formal terms. Bonaparte's body is coiled like a spring, its spiraling form mirrored in the flag above. The stunningly energetic handling of paint and bold colors reinforce the drama. The image of Bonaparte himself, with his youthful face seen in three-quarters view and surrounded by long, unkempt hair, would soon become iconic, repeated frequently in a variety of portraits completed in the years immediately following the event, but also, as we shall see, under this restoration and later. Given the fame of the portrait and the importance of Bonaparte's heroics at, the Arcole, at Arcole to his later legend, it is significant that his actions had little effect on the outcome of the battle. Several other generals had led charges on that day that ended in failure. Bonaparte's was no different. Uh, according to numerous first-hand accounts, Bonaparte's charge was stopped well short of the bridge. He was jostled about by retreating troops and knocked into a narrow but deep ditch beside the road. A group of officers pulled him from the ditch and brought him to safety. Minutes later, covered with mud, he borrowed a horse, a horse and left to change his clothes. <laughs> These details of the day uh, have largely been erased from the historical record. Bonaparte's dubious heroics failed to end the stalemate of the first day. Two more days of fighting were necessary before the bridge, before the French could cross the bridge. And uh, in the event, they actually took the town from behind. Uh, why then did Bonaparte choose to feature this episode in his propaganda given its potentially embarrassing aspects? The answer, as I've argued this already elsewhere, 
seems to be that Arcole offered Bonaparte the best possibility of presenting a certain image of himself. Arcole represented the only time in the entire campaign that Bonaparte had exposed himself to real danger by entering directly into the fighting. By seizing a flag and marching out before his troops, Bonaparte momentarily exchanged his position as general-in-chief of the army uh, for that of a lower officer. Uh, exemplifying the bravery expected in all ranks of the military and becoming at once a model infantryman and a general of demonstrated distinction. In contrast to pre-revolutionary portraits, I'm showing you here a portrait by Yassin Rigaud, uh, in which generals typically appear removed from the battle, holding a baton and, can, and, and commanding from afar, Gros placed Bonaparte at the very center of the fray. This behavior was completely in keeping with the ideals of, the re of revolutionary propaganda, sorry, the ideas that revolutionary propaganda claimed were characteristic of the French army. Forced to rely on volunteers and conscripts for its fighting force, the French government began in the early 1790s to tout the self-motivation and patriotism of its citizen soldiers and a new form of military organization in which rank was determined by merit. In its heyday, this vision led to the practice of having ordinary soldiers elect officers. Soldiers of every, every rank would, in theory, distinguish themselves and inspire others through their willingness to risk their lives in a messianic quest to spread the ideals of the French Revolution. In Gros' painting, it is such a figure carrying the flag inscribed with the emblem of the French nation who shakes his troops out of their fearful stupor and inspires them to act courageously. Thus, the notion of an exceptional leader is combined with the revolutionary vision of a nationalistic, meritocratic, and egalitarian army. And actually, I noticed uh, at the, this morning, right before we started, that Susan Siegfried is here. And I should note that uh, uh, the importance of the citizen-soldier ideal in revolutionary art, much of this comes out of her work. Um, uh, Bonaparte immediately recognized the value of Gros' image. He had, uh, he had made much of a similar charge led uh, by his chief of staff, Alexandre Berthier, at an earlier battle at, at Lodi and clearly wanted to fashion a similar image for himself. In an account of the Battle of Arcole published days after the event, he portrayed his charge as the most successful of a series of them led by other generals. As it happened, another general who had led a charge at Arcole also recognized its potential. General Pierre Augereau, uh, who held political ambitions not unlike Bonaparte's, commissioned his own portrait crossing the bridge at Arcole from the artist Charles Thévenin. While Thévenin's picture drew more on the Anglo-American Anglo tradition of battle painting, it similarly foregrounded the Republican idea of a general willing to risk his life in the role of a lower officer. And he similarly featured Republican symbols prominently. Bonaparte, however, commanded far more resources than Augereau and quickly commissioned an engraving after Gros' canvas and may well have sponsored other prints, such as this etching dedicated to the Army of Italy. So I have been arguing that Gros' portrait is an important Republican image of Bonaparte not simply because of its fame and the period in which it was made, but also because it expresses specifically Republican ideals. I should emphasize that it is, not it is not necessarily a typical Republican portrait of the revolutionary period, 
and all the ways that Amy Freund and Tony Halliday have taught us to appreciate them. Uh, uh, nor is it uh, Republican in the ways that other images of him are, and I note uh, that the consular portraits, just show you two from the consular period, are particularly underappreciated in the ways that they balance republicanism against competing ideals, a topic that will no doubt come up at this conference. But the republicanism expressed in the Arcoli portrait, just like in other revolutionary and consular images of Bonaparte, was soon displaced by an iconography more in tune with uh, Napoleon's imperial and monarchical ambitions. Uh, in official portraits executed during the empire, such as this one by François Gérard, uh, Napoleon adopted the trappings of absolute monarchy. Officials fabricated a set of clothes and paraphernalia that drew heavily on what was known as the Carolingian tradition in order to create a lineage for Napoleon, even as they separated him from the Bourbons. Yet the use of rich materials such as ermine and gold brocade and the elaborate symbols obviously emulated the practices of the preceding French monarchy, just as Gérard's portrait emulated the work of the old regime portraitist Yassin Rigaud. Republican imagery was not completely excluded from the new image of Napoleon. As Amy Freund has noted, the image of family plays an important role in David's painting of Napoleon's coronation in a way that would not have happened under the Ancien Regime. Nonetheless, the transformation of the revolutionary general into a monarch was dramatic and left far behind the overtly republican aspects of earlier portraiture. <clears throat> I want now to move to the iconography of Napoleon Bonaparte that emerged during the Restoration, or during the period from 1815 to 1830. After his fall from power, uh, after, sorry, Napoleon's fall from power, as Sudhir Hazari Singh has recently noted, this was a period in which the image of Bonaparte as a Republican experienced a considerable revival. Bonaparte himself had a hand in this makeover, portraying himself as a repentant defender of liberty and equality in the hundred days in which he returned to power in 1850. <coughs> In his writings from exile after 1815, he sometimes further suggested that he had regretfully abandoned uh, the Republican ideals of his earlier career. But as Hazari Singh has demonstrated, the newly Republicanized Bonaparte was very much a popular and spontaneous creation of French society. <coughs> Bonaparte became the supreme embodiment of the opposition to the return of the Ancien Regime. And as such, his Republican attributes came to the fore. In the face of the restored Bourbon monarchy's efforts to eradicate all memory of the revolutionary and Napoleonic past, Napoleonic commemoration became, these are Hazari Singh's words, an act of civic defiance, a conspiratorial <coughs> gesture of political resistance. Moreover, in restoration society, the contours between the oppositional political platform of, uh, platforms of liberalism, republicanism and bonapartism were not at all clear, but they all shared an admiration for the revolutionary Bonaparte. In this context, a distinctly republican image of Bonaparte re-emerged. It comes as little surprise then that Gros' portrait received renewed interest as a model for picturing Napoleon Bonaparte. Prominent artists uh, with varying allegiances to liberalism, republicanism, and Bonapartism 
most notably Horace Vernet and Theodore Géricault, incorporated aspects of Gros' portrait into their depictions of Arcoli and other battles. In the most elaborate of these images, which you see on the screen here, a painting of the Battle of Arcole done by Vernet in 1826, the figure of Bonaparte is based closely on Gros' image. Uh, Gros' portrait reappears in partial form in numerous other depictions of the battle done during the Restoration. I'm showing you one other print here. Uh, but it also informed other depictions of, revolutionary, uh, uh, of, the of the revolutionary Bonaparte as a military leader. For example, Jericho illustrated Antoine Vincent Arnaud's political and military life of Napoleon with a lithograph of Bonaparte leading a French army across the Egyptian desert. Uh, Gros' earlier portrait lies beneath the engaged, gesturing, and twisting image of the general. Gros' portrait had, uh, had uh, arguably provided an important model for Jericho's first major salon painting, his charging uh, chasseur of 1812, which uses a similarly twisting pose to embody a figure leading a charge. If the charging chasseur largely logically transfer, transferred Bonaparte's heroism onto a lower officer during the empire, his lithograph of Bonaparte leading the French across the French desert, sorry, the French across the desert, restored it, uh, it to its republican origins. What we know about the circles of Vernet and Jericho, uh, which had considerable overlap, uh, conforms to the picture outlined by Hazari Singh. Nina Athanas Blue Kalmeyer has described Vernet's milieu as that of a liberal opposition composed of Republicans, Bonapartists, and Orleanists. Uh, and she has noted how Vernet's 1821 uh, painting of his studio combined, combined figures and signs representing these various political positions with a markedly martial and masculinist iconography. Jericho's precise political affiliations uh, have been more difficult to determine, but there can be no question that his loyalties lay primarily within the liberal opposition. Uh, Katie Hornstein has recently suggested that Vernet's painting of Arcole sought to find common ground among various oppositional parties uh, under the Restoration. She argues that Vernet used the image of Bonaparte convincing his soldiers to charge as an opportunity to explore, quote, the dynamic and potentially disappointing process of producing group accord, representing power as an interdependent relationship between a figure of authority and a collective of individuals. Vernet's painting, she argues, shifted attention from Bonaparte to his soldiers, emphasizing the difficulty of creating consensus I find this thesis very convincing, and it is notable that the liberals uh, uh, that uh, liberals thought through the challenges of Republican politics by reviving and meditating upon existing images of the Republican career of Bonaparte. <clears throat> the legacy of Gros' portrait and inspiring works that adapted the Napoleonic legend to new expressions of Republicanism continued into the July monarchy. Uh, or the period from 1830 to 1848. Uh, the Arc de Triomphe, for example, contains an overt reference to Gros' portrait, as well as to Vernet's painting, in Jean-Jacques Foucher's relief, The Crossing of the Arcole. Perhaps even more interesting uh, uh, is uh, Francois Rude's famous relief on the Arc de Triomphe 
known as the Marseillaise, or the departure of the volunteers of 1792. Uh, the lower part of the sculpture depicts revolutionary military recruits, made over into classical types, going off to defend the nation in 1792, and thus it carries Republican overtones. But it is the allegorical figure of victory, or the genius of the fatherland above them, <coughs> named in various ways, uh, that is of most interest here, because it transmutes many of the basic attributes of Bonaparte in, uh, in Gros' picture, the weapon-bearing, twisting figure leading a charge, who turns backwards to encourage uh, those behind him, into a personification that recalls uh, not simply victory, but Marianne, or the embodiment of the French Republic. The image suggests how, the centra how central the attributes of Bonaparte in Gros' portrait had become to Republican iconography, and how they could be generalized through the device of allegory. That is to say, key aspects of Gros' portrait now carried revolutionary and Republican overtones, quite apart from their specific relation to Bonaparte and his actions. I want now to move ahead a full century after the fall of the empire to the First World War to examine changes that had occurred that had occurred both to the Republican image of Bonaparte and to the dynamic figure leading troops into battle. French artists contributed to the war effort during World War I, most notably through a poster campaign for which over 400 unique posters uh, were made. I'm going to advertise a show that I have up now made up of these posters at the Cranford Art Museum uh, in Champaign, Illinois, if any of you are in that part of the country. Unlikely, I know, but please come to this show. Um, uh, so French artists contri contributed uh, primarily to the war effort with these posters. Now, by the time of World War I, there was no question that using images of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, of using uh, images of Napoleon Bonaparte in official propaganda, after Napoleon's nephew, Louis Napoleon, established an empire in 1851 and destroyed France's second republic, the Republican Bonaparte largely disappeared from the Napoleonic legend. The third republic, which replaced Napoleon III's empire after France's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War and the experience of the Commune, had almost no use for Napoleonic imagery. And this remained the case throughout World War I. Um, as, the artists under the Third as artists under the Third Republic looked for past Republican military uh, heroes to hold up as models, they were forced to turn to figures such as Dumouriez and Valmy, as we see on the left, Republican uh, general who led the battle at Valmy, or Lafayette, who you see on the right, who of course had the added attraction that he could recall the long history of good Franco-American relations. Posters are filled with specifically Republican motifs, especially Marianne, who appears in dozens of them. Uh, the closest we ever come to Napoleon Bonaparte is in images of the Arc de Triomphe, which of course was begun under the Empire, although it was finished uh, in the July Monarchy. Even in images of the Arc de Triomphe, the allusion to Bonaparte is mediated almost to the point of disappearance recalled only vaguely through Rude's figure of victory or the arch itself. None of the many reliefs on the Arc de Triomphe depicting Bonaparte and his battles is reproduced in the posters. 
On the other hand, numerous posters drawn on an iconography developed under Napoleon or by his admirers under the Restoration, the swarming ghost-like soldiers who emerge from the arch in this image uh, to join their modern-day compatriots below come directly from the work of Auguste Raffet, who first used such images to depict Napoleon's Grand, uh, Grand Armée under the July monarchy. The posters often depict anecdotal war scenes that owe much to similar vignettes developed by Horace Vernet. And finally, there is this figure on which I wish to dwell for a moment. This is probably the most famous of all French World War I posters, similar in terms of recognizability to the Uncle Sam, I Want You poster in the United States. Created by Abel Febvre in 1916, the image depicts a soldier marching into the space of the picture, but turning to those behind him to encourage them to follow. The caption reads, On les aura, we'll get them, uh, a phrase used by Marshal Pétain some months before to encourage French troops at Verdun. This image, uh, which, uh, with its swiveled pose, weapon in hand, and confident movement forward, inviting troops and by implication the nation to follow him into battle, seems to descend directly from Gros Bonaparte at Arcole. Though I'm not sure that an allusion to the Arcole portrait was consciously intended. It is also possible to see Rude's victory in the striding soldier, her features and limbs slightly rearranged. How should we understand this image in relation, to Republican in relation to the Republican iconography that developed around the legend of Napoleon? On the one hand, we might emphasize the more or less complete effacement of Bonaparte, the citizen-soldier ideal that had been appropriated by Bonaparte at Arcole is here rightly restored to the inf infantryman himself. The cult of personality that was so central to Gros' image uh, and those that quoted it in the Restoration and July Monarchy has been abandoned in favor of an everyman that seems more appropriate to Republican ideology itself. And yet the endurance of key elements first developed by Bonaparte's propagandists in the years of the Revolution and kept alive by propo proponents of the Napoleonic legend suggests how central Bonaparte's intervention in, Republic in Republican politics had been. However much republicanism sought to separate itself from Napoleon 100 years after the fall of the empire, his legacy lived on in republican iconography. Thank you.